Hello and welcome to the Economy Bytes podcast. The podcast features the latest market and economic updates from the economics and sustainability team at PwC Middle East, as featured in our monthly Transforming Our Region webinar. In this episode, we hear from Jing Tio, a director in the economics and sustainability team at PwC Middle East. I'll first touch on what's been happening to oil prices in the past several weeks, especially since the onset of the conflict in Gaza, and what this might mean for the outlook for oil prices and production. Now, one might expect that given the proximity of the conflict to major oil producers, there would be a much more significant increase in oil prices in case there, are, there is any disruption to supply. And as we've seen in past conflicts, you know, for instance, during the invasion of Kuwait, prices doubled. During the oil embargo in the 1970s, oil prices increased by around 50%. Now, what we've seen instead is that after a small uptick in oil prices, Brent crude has for the most part remained around the levels that we've seen for most of this year and briefly fell below the $80 mark last week. And this was also despite the announcement that Saudi Arabia and Russia would continue production cuts of a combined 1.3 million barrels until the end of the year. So what's happening here? So remember that oil prices are a function of supply and demand. On the demand side, there are a few factors weighing on this. Firstly, you have the situation in China with its deepening property crisis, which will have an impact on the construction sector and general business and consumer confidence. Secondly, the US economy has so far defied fears of a recession, but it is also showing signs of approaching a soft landing. Third is the direction of interest rates. The Federal Reserve recently hit pause on raising interest rates further at its last meeting, but there are also signals that there could be another rate increase by the end of the year. And then finally, what makes this current conflict different to others is that the world is not as oil dependent as it used to be in the past, and the oil intensity of GDP has actually decreased to about 40% of what it used to be in, in the 1970s. You know, and, and we can see this in the transport sector, it's become far less energy intensive and there's also been substitution of oil with other energy sources. And then on the supply side, again, unlike the 70s when the world was again heavily dependent on oil producers in the Middle East, we have seen oil production emerge in other places, including in the US, the North Sea and elsewhere. And countries have also established strategic reserves for emergencies as well. And also unlike previous episodes of conflict that have drawn in major oil producers, this conflict is currently assumed to be confined, so supply is not expected to be directly impacted. Now, this could still change if the conflict starts to spill over into other states as well, but if these trends continue, the oil price gains may be limited. Of course, this also depends on what OPEC chooses to do. Given the current outlook for oil prices, rather than increase output in 2024, the voluntary cuts seem likely to continue until early next year. And indeed, OPEC Plus might also decide to make further cuts to balance supply and demand. And this is also important for fiscal reasons. The break-even oil price ranges from $46 for Qatar up to over 100 for Bahrain. The KSA is somewhere in the middle at around $86. So the oil prices will also matter, you know, very much so for countries at the higher end of the break-even oil price. So it's likely that supply will be closely controlled with the possibility of further cuts when OPEC Plus meets this weekend. 
Another potential area that would be useful to highlight is the impact of the conflict on the region's economies and particularly the tourism sector. So on the next slide, just give you a bit of a brief on why this is important. You know, clearly beyond the loss of life and the costly damage to infrastructure, one of the sectors that will be hard hit is the tourism sector, particularly in Lebanon, Egypt and Jordan because of their geographic proximity to the conflict and also the risk that there could be spillover effects within their borders. Just to give you a sense of the importance of the tourism sector in these countries, it contributes to up to a third of these countries' current account receipts, which is really crucial in terms of being able to generate foreign exchange income. It also directly employs about 10 to 20% of the working population, again, which is critical given the high rates of unemployment in places like Jordan and Lebanon. So even though conflict itself hasn't directly touched these countries, perhaps with the exception of Lebanon, tour agencies have already reported cancellations of bookings and some flights have also been suspended. In terms of how material the tourism impacts could be, so based on some scenario analysis by S&P Global, if tourism receipts fell by about 10 to 30%, the direct loss to economic output could be up to 10% of GDP in these countries. Now, Egypt is a little bit vulnerable as well because of its ability to generate foreign exchange reserves. That said, both Egypt and Jordan are likely to receive additional aid from bilateral and multilateral donors because instability in these countries could also have broader effects in the region. Another mitigating factor is that a large proportion of visitors are also the non-resident diaspora. So these visits tend to be a bit more inelastic. Turkey and the GCC are likely to be less impacted. For one, they are further away from the conflict zones and two, some tourism may be diverted away as well from other parts of the region to these countries. So in summary, impacts on tourism will be negative but to varying degrees. And then finally, it's worth noting that we're now at the midway point towards Vision 2030. And you know, as, as Steve you know, trailed earlier, we have also just launched our inaugural Saudi Economy Watch, which we discussed the kingdom's achievement in more detail. And what we find is that it has charted pretty solid performance relative to the 14 economic targets that we looked at. I'll just touch on some of the key highlights. You know, clearly progress on female labor force participation. When the target of 30% was set at the time, participation was 22%, one of the lowest levels in the world. But this was surpassed in 2020 and was further exceeded this year, reaching 35%, which is hugely encouraging. And even with the influx of Saudi women into the labor force, unemployment has also declined and it hit around 8% this year, which is one of the lowest levels on record. And then also on home ownership, that has also charted significant improvements. And this is because of the increase in the supply of affordable homes, access to home financing and other fiscal incentives. Now, there are a few areas of improvement as well. So in terms of the performance of non-oil exports, as well as FDI, these are a little bit behind target. But you know, on the FDI side, investment does take time to scale up meaningfully, and we're yet to see the full potential of initiatives like the regional HQ program as well as PIF's investments. 
And then lastly, in terms of the religious tourism targets, there's still some way to go here, but the numbers will hopefully improve with increased accommodation and a boost to travel capacity as well. So in summary, good solid performance so far, and it looks like the kingdom is on track to achieve Vision 2030 targets. And if anything, the country is already looking ahead to set the agenda for the next you know, 10 years to 2040. And you can read more about the Saudi Economy Watch on our website. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Tune in again next month for a new episode of Economy Bites.